Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. Today, we welcome back Brian Finch, a partner in Pillsbury's Public Policy Group, who is a recognized authority on global security and cybersecurity threats. Hi, Joel. It's great to be back with you. Hi, Brian. It's hard to believe it's been more than 10 months since you joined us on episode two, when we discussed social engineering, fund diversion scams, and what was then a recent escalation of state-sponsored cyber attacks. A lot has changed since then, but not surprisingly, cyber attacks have increased and some of their after effects have had far-ranging implications. What are you seeing as the biggest threats today? So, Joel, we're still seeing a variety of threats that are uh, impacting companies in the United States and beyond. We're definitely seeing a spike, for instance, in ransomware attacks that also have a data breach component to them. And so normally when you have a ransomware attack, what happens is that a company's data is encrypted and you have to pay off, hence the term ransomware, uh, the perpetrator of the hack to get your your information unencrypted and return your data systems to normal. What's been recently happening is that it's not just the encryption, but there's also been an exfiltration of data. So it's a dual threat in that case. Not only is your data encrypted, but it's been stolen as well. And the hackers are demanding a ransom not only to un- unlock your system, but also to prevent them from releasing the private information, the uh, uh, personally identifiable information, healthcare information, sensitive financial information, et cetera, to a wider audience. So it's sort of a twofer attack. You get the ransom and you get data breach as well. Uh, and that's that's been pretty challenging and, and it's increasing the pressure on companies to respond and potentially pay off the ransom. In, in that particular case, because not only do you now have to worry about, well, can I keep my business going, but even if you can unlock it pretty easily, uh, or with the help of law enforcement or incident response companies, you still have to worry about this potential for a data breach. And of course, the data breach is more harmful because that can trigger all sorts of notification requirements and potential penalties under state law and, and other laws. So that trend is continuing. It's definitely a dangerous one and one that I don't think is going to be decreasing anytime soon. It's the reality, sad reality, unfortunately, Joel, is that it's generating a lot of money. Uh, and where there is money, you're going to find criminals. And the combination of the two have been have led to a lot of increases uh, in cyber attacks over the last 12 months. As always, Brian, it sounds like there's lots to keep you and your team busy all the time. One offshoot of all this that caught my attention is the use of knowledge of a data breach to perpetrate insider trading. This is different than the use of the stolen information itself. Rather, it's the knowledge that a data breach occurred that's being used for nefarious purposes. What can you tell us about that? So that's another really interesting and I would say in some ways disappointing trend. So we're starting to see worries and in some some hints that what's happening is that when there is knowledge inside a company before public disclosure that you might see some trading going on to take advantage of the situation, meaning that the company's stock might take a hit, it might face penalties, et cetera. And so employees, you know, whether at the executive level or uh, others in the company who just might be opportunistic and, and less than fully... Uh, 
motivated in a moral sense in the, in the company and the public's welfare might try to take advantage of that by conducting some sort of insider trading and shorting or whatever the case may be. You know, fortunately, Joel, I'm not one who's overly <laughs> familiar with how to conduct a, uh, uh, a financial crime, so I'm not going to go into all the ways that people can do it. But the, the, the point here is that we're definitely seeing some hints and worries that people are using the knowledge of the data breach and the gap in time between the discovery of the breach and the announcement of the breach to use that for their own personal financial gain. And that's troublesome. Uh, that's definitely troublesome. And another item that's going to have to go on the C-suite uh, checklist for incident response and crisis management to make sure not only that you're responding effectively, but no one inside the company is trying to use that information in a way that would result in self-dealing, insider trading, whatever you want to call it in that particular case. And unfortunately, again, as these attacks grow and there's a gap between the time it's discovered and remediated, much less publicly announced, these opportunities are going to arise. And, and sadly, not everyone is, uh, is, is the most above board in these types of situations. So it's certainly something that internal compliance officers and security officials are going to have to want to be on the lookout for. That's a fascinating development, Brian, and one that must be very difficult to prevent. What are some strategies companies can employ to guard against this problem? So there's going to be a number of tactics you can use to try and prevent that. And you know what's very important to remember from the start is that you have to balance the knowledge of the cyber attack and reading in the right people in order to remediate it uh, with the, the, the pressure to make sure that you don't overly share information and it falls into the hands of someone who shouldn't necessarily have it and might be able to use it in a way that allows them, again, to conduct something for personal gain rather than for the benefit of the intended beneficiaries, meaning the stockholders, the company, customers, etc. So there's a number of tools you can use there. Some are going to be procedural, making sure you know who has access to information about a breach, when they have access to it, and trying to make sure that that, that knowledge is limited only to the people who are responsible for responding or in a position to try and remediate it, meaning don't send a company-wide email about a data breach, but also saying we're not going to announce this and we ask everyone to keep quiet, et cetera. You, you want to make sure that the information is properly disclosed and in a way that helps maintain the security surrounding it, but also falls into compliance with whatever governing laws or regulations apply. There are other tools as well that you can look into, for instance, employee monitoring software and other tools that are used, just generally speaking, to be on the, on the watch list for any of these types of insider actions. And I think when it, you know, those, those tools are, are, are numerous, but what's really important here is that in their deployment and when they're going to be used, it shouldn't just necessarily be for everyday uh, incidents or everyday incidents of insider trading or the like. It should also be that they should be heightened in something that's in the toolbox when there is an actual data breach or some other type of cyber incident that they're also being used at that point to monitor for any unusual spikes in trade, uh, whether from internal or external sources in order to make sure that no one is trying to take advantage of the situation by manipulating an individual security or manipulating the market writ large. So it just falls into a larger bucket as, if, as you watch for unusual trading uh, whether inside or outside the company and you're using those behavioral analysis tools or insider monitoring type of tools, you want to make sure that they're tied to 
when an incident, a data breach incident, a cyber incident has occurred, because that's another threat scenario that has popped up and one that companies need to keep their eye on in order to keep themselves out of even more trouble. It sounds like an ever-changing landscape for the crisis management folks at companies. And although cybersecurity is always changing, one thing hasn't changed, and that's the vigilance that companies and individuals need to maintain to keep the wolves at bay. Thanks for this insightful update, Brian. It's been great having you back with us again. Always a pleasure, Joel. And now it's time for This Week in History. This week, I'd like to feature something on the lighter side, with a tribute to a lovable children's character, but one who also brings a smile to a lot of adults. May 15th marks the 93rd anniversary of the very first appearance of Disney's mascot and iconic character, Mickey Mouse. On that day, in 1928, Walt Disney Studios released an animated short film entitled Plane Crazy. Initially made as a silent film, it was re-released 10 months later as the fourth Mickey Mouse film with sound, on the heels of the success of perhaps the best-known early Mickey Mouse sound film, Steamboat Willie. Inspired by Charles Lindbergh's flight from New York City to Paris, in Plane Crazy, Mickey builds an airplane from a roadster parked nearby to take Minnie Mouse for a trip on which Mickey is intent on kissing her. But Minnie will have none of that. Filled with out-of-control flight antics and impossible situations, Plane Crazy delivers a fun-filled six minutes. I encourage you to watch it. You can easily find it online, and it will definitely make you smile. Catch all our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music, as well as on our website, PillsburyLaw.com. And until next time, thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast.